If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. The words of Jesus, spoken to Peter and the other disciples at the midpoint of Mark's gospel, were anything but symbolic. By the second half of the first century AD, many followers of Jesus, including Peter, had to decide if the good news was worth dying for. It was not a foregone conclusion that they would lay down their lives. Peter, for his part, was famous for two things, boldly revealing Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the Son of God, and just as boldly denying that he ever knew him. Decades later, as the Roman Empire under the rule of Nero took aim at followers of Jesus, Peter made his choice clear. He would give up his life. But first, he would make sure believers in Rome and generations who came after them knew exactly what they and he were dying for. Before he died, Peter entrusted his memories about Jesus to a friend named Mark. There was little time to waste, and you can feel the urgency in Mark's gospel. It reads like a fast-paced drama. Jesus moves quickly from one place to the next, preaching and healing. One question follows him everywhere he goes. Who is this man? The crowds want to know. The religious leaders want to know. Jesus' family and even his own disciples search for the answer. But when it's finally revealed in the middle of Mark's story, no one, not even the disciples, are prepared for what comes next. According to Mark, Jesus, not the emperor, is the son of God. He is the one true king. But Jesus offers an upside down kingdom where victory comes through defeat. It's only when Jesus dies and his disciples scatter that it finally becomes clear, and it's a Roman soldier, one of his executioners, who realizes first, the man he just killed is the real son of God. This is what divinity in flesh looks like. Peter entrusted his memories to Mark and wrote two letters of his own to encourage believers to make the same choice Jesus did, victory through defeat life through death, joy through suffering. Can we pause just for a moment here and think about those three lines? Do those make sense to you? I would say it's somewhat paradoxical thinking, isn't it? It's a little bit confusing and it's sometimes hard if you read some of these and just at face value, it seems confusing. Victory through defeat, that doesn't make any sense, right? What are you talking about, Peter, with that? Life through death, what? That doesn't seem right, does it? Or joy through suffering, that certainly doesn't feel right when I'm suffering, joy is the last thing that I think about or even pray for. I'm just trying to get through that. And yet, as 
many of us were reading, especially Peter's letters, first and second Peter, and then also Jude that was profoundly influenced by Peter. These were some of these truths, some of these ideas. In fact, he says them very specifically. And I couldn't help as I was reading some of those go, really? What, what do I do with that? Victory through defeat does not seem to make any sense. We talked, we've been talking about the Apostle Paul's letters and how there's some challenges to understand and bring together these ideas that seem on different ends of the spectrum. And, and I have to say with Peter, yes, he's a little bit softer than Paul is. Would you agree with some of the reading? And yet there is within Peter what I would call this paradoxical reasoning, these lines that at first glance, just on the surface level, you go, that does not seem right. In fact, we were also reading, many of us, the Gospel of Mark, where we see Peter, Simon Peter, in a way that I guess I can relate to a little bit more in the Gospels. That Peter, where, where Peter names Jesus as the Messiah, and then Jesus talks about his own suffering, and Peter basically goes, not on my watch, uh-uh, no. And then Jesus has to rebuke him right away. I can relate to that kind of impetuous, that, that, that bold, that jump in before thinking kind of Peter. Or then at the end, where, where they're coming to get Jesus, Peter is the one that says, all right, here it is, sword, and he strikes, and I guess he didn't learn his lesson, right? He, he's trying to avoid that suffering. That, that's the kind of Peter that makes sense to me. And yet in his letters, you get this transformed Peter. This, this Peter that has gone from Simon to this one who is filled with the wisdom of God. And I think that transformation reflects this important kingdom concept that I want us to, to think about and dig in this morning. This idea of that the thinking in terms of kingdom li lines, uh, thinking in terms of the lens of the kingdom, and living the kingdom can often feel either paradoxical or what some have said, which I like, is upside down. That, that it's, it's backwards. It's backwards thinking. It's, it does not make sense, at least at first blush. And that part of learning the kingdom of God, learning this new life that God calls us to, we have to flip upside down some of the truths or the lessons in our minds. Uh, Dallas Willard, a famous Christian philosopher and teacher, in probably his most famous book, divine conspiracy, he uses this analogy. He says, if life is like an airplane and we're cruising along 
and we're flying and, you know, we take in sometimes the beautiful horizon and a gorgeous day, but sometimes we reach, hit turbulence, right? And we do that. And so life is made of this ups and downs and challenges and struggles and high points, peaks and valleys. When you become a Christian and you begin to hear the, the voice of God speak into your life, you begin to realize in a sense that we've been flying upside down. We thought we were right side up. But in fact, the truth of God is, is that much of our lives, we've been flying upside down. Why? Because of sin has invaded our our thinking, rebellion, all of those things. So we're flying along and we're looking at the horizon thinking this is great and yet God actually created us to live like this. And so part of the kingdom of God is learning to allow him to take our lives and and flip that understanding up so that we can live the life he's calling us to live, the abundant life. I see you thinking. Let me give you one more analogy. All right. If I were to show you this picture, let's see, Calvin. What do you see, Calvin, when you see this picture? I see Mike. You see Mike. (laughs) All right. Come on, give it to me. Antelope. Okay, I would have gone with deer, but I'll go with antelope. That's that's good. Anything else that you see there? Huh? A little lamb, possibly. All right. Now, what if I were to flip it upside down? Do you see anything else? Yes. What do you see, Mike? <laughs> You see a seal. Same picture. Just flipped upside down. In the kingdom life, sometimes you have to pull back and take a truth and say, what's a kingdom perspective that might be there that I did not realize? In fact, just talking with my daughter about some teenager things. One of my daughters, I, I asked the question, what's a kingdom perspective? How do we understand it looks like an antelope or a deer or Mike, but actually it might be a seal in God's lens. So let's do that with some key principles from Peter where he talks and it seems like there's these statements that don't make sense when in fact within the kingdom perhaps they really are true. Perhaps they reflect when we're living life right side up. And the first one I'd have to say it bugs me more than any other statement in first and second Peter. Can I be honest with you that sometimes the truth of God bugs me? It, it, it's, I struggle with it. I wrestle with it. And probably that first one all through his letters is that we're called to rejoice in suffering. 
rejoice in suffering. He says this in a number of places, but 1 Peter 4, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though, though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. Really, Peter? I, isn't that like of the top three things you don't say to someone who's suffering? Isn't that right? Yeah. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I don't think it's so hard for me to use in the same sentence or thought the idea of deep suffering and joy. It seems hard to hold those two together. It seems paradoxical. It seems upside down. No matter how many Christian veneers I try and put on it, it's still struggle, right? I, it's still hard for me, especially when I'm in the midst of suffering and difficulty. And you know, there's been a process where I think there's a number of kingdom perspectives that have helped me begin to, what I would say, turn that plane right side up. One is the idea that I have to remind myself again and again that my suffering does not reflect the heart of the Father. The heart of the Father is reflected in the Garden of Eden and the goodness of his kingdom and his presence. We'll use the suffering, yes, but it doesn't reflect his heart. In fact, it reflects more so that we live in a broken world, that we commit sin and rebellion and we face consequences in that way. That, that kingdom perspective helps me. Another kingdom perspective that helps me a lot is that when we suffer in some mysterious way, we share in the suffering of Christ. In fact, Paul was to the kingdom perspective that he longed for what he called the fellowship of his suffering. Then in the midst of our difficulty, there was an intimacy that perhaps we cannot know with the Father unless we're in those difficult places. And I do long for that. I long for that intimacy. It's helpful. The kingdom perspective that has helped me more than any other, I would say, is, and in fact, this is from Dallas Willard, who I talked about earlier, is the priority of my soul in the heart of the Father. That our soul is more important to him than anything else in this world. In fact, when Peter talks about Jesus as our shepherd, he specifically says in 1 Peter 2.25, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Saying that Jesus is walking with us and far more than our bank accounts, than our possessions, than our physical health, all those things that we pray for and we're after, and God, would you help with all those things, right? And he's saying, 
Actually, what I'd really like to talk to you is about what's going on in your heart. And and here's the key thing is, is that oftentimes we think when we hear shepherd of our soul, we think that his main work is the protector of our soul. I want to suggest that that's not right. That far more than protect our soul is he wants to grow our soul. And sometimes he wants to grow us in ways that he can only do through brokenness and suffering. There is a Japanese art that I was reading, and I'm probably going to say the name wrong, but I think it's pronounced Kinsukuri. Kinsukuri. And that means, actually literally, it's, it's the art of golden repair. Of golden repair. It's, it's we're working with pottery when there is a piece of pottery that is broken or fractured. They fill the cracks. They piece it together literally with gold. And so um, it's a fractured or broken in the pottery, but the golden repair is they're, they're filling those different places with gold. And so literally the fractures are illuminated. It's kind of in a physical expression of our spirits or souls. And the, the philosophy of Kinsakuri celebrates imperfection not something to be pushed away or not talked about or, or uh, under the rug, but it's something that's celebrated because it's an integral part of the story of the piece of pottery. And that they, in this art, they're taking what was initially beautiful, but making it far more beautiful by filling it with gold. I was thinking, what a picture of our soul that God is about bringing deep and abiding healing, yes. Beauty, yes. Golden repair of our souls. That we, we get to hear his voice in those places. We get to feel his touch in those places. He gets to fill and shape and mold us so much more in those moments. He teaches us to turn that plane right side up. You know, knowing that he has a redemptive purpose in my soul is of great comfort. I would love to know the redemptive purposes, right? Wouldn't you like to know those redemptive purposes? I don't think we get to a lot of the circumstances. But simply knowing that he's promised golden repair, that he has promised redemptive work that helps me turn my plane right side up. That helps me see. Friends, I want to suggest that we can't get to that perspective on our own as mere mortals, but that we desperately need the presence and power of his Holy Spirit 
to really live in that perspective. I would, I wish I didn't have to say this, but I, I think I, I probably still have to say, in every moment of difficulty or stress or suffering, my immediate response is, why God? That's not fair. I'm flying upside down. And then as I promise, as he promised, process with him, I learned that. Rejoice in suffering. There's another principle from, from Peter. I've got another picture here. Nate, let's pick on you for a while. Nate, what do you see there? Just say. <laughs> uh, looks like a giraffe. Looks like a giraffe. Anything else? Ah, okay. Thank you, Damien. See, Mike. Oh, it's a penguin. It's a pen. Okay, turn it back over. Isn't that interesting? Go back there. We've got giraffe, and then we've got a penguin. All right. Now let's talk about another upside-down principle of truth. Really, this is a command from Peter. Peter says. Repay evil with blessing. Repay evil with blessing. First Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Am I the only one that reads that and go, but that, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that does not feel right. I have a sense of justice within me. When someone insults me, what do I want to do? The same exact thing. And do they deserve that? I think they do, right? I think they do. I have this, sad, this sense of, in the justice of this world, what goes around should, and I like to help it come around to that person. Really, Peter, I don't like that. that that's irksome. That's bothersome. That's paradoxical. But maybe that's right. Maybe that's right side living, right side flying. In fact, there's an interesting truth that is reflected in Peter, but also all through scripture, is that our lives, how we live, matter. That there is a day, a day of judgment, a day of the Lord, that includes both fire and inheritance. Fire and inheritance. That, that we will have, I think that there's, uh, many of us misunderstand this day of judgment. That we only understand it from one perspective and that is in and out perspective. And that is involved, that there will be a question that God will ask each and every human being, and that will be, what have you done with my son? What have you done with Jesus? 
He died for your sins. Have you received him and allowed him? And for sure that will be part. And, and there is a book of life and we long that our names are written in the book of life. But did you know there's another book there? It's called the book of deeds. And there's a mystery there. It's a mystery, yes, but that's not necessarily an in and out idea. That is this idea of reward and loss. To hear that in the initial, there's an inheritance that he wants for us, but how we live relates to how we will ultimately, the reward we receive for eternity. Listen to some of these scriptures from Peter. In his God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope and into this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. This idea that when we die, for those who are in Christ, we receive this inheritance. However, there's more. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. There is a judgment. There is a test. There is a weighing of our lives and our work in this world. And he says, therefore, live for Christ. Live for him knowing that we will review our lives. He says, 1 Peter 4, 5, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Will you be in the category either living or dead when Jesus comes back? Yes. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 3. I don't have that on the screen there. But he says, your work your lives will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's life and work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward, that grand inheritance. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. This is not in and out. This is reward and loss. Even though only as one escaping through the flames. I don't want to be the one escaping through the flames. I want to be the one receiving. And he's saying, live like this. And friends, I don't think that we get to say, well, yes, I was very, very mean to Mike. But God, do you know what he did to me? He threw the shade at me. I couldn't believe it. I was so hurt. I was so devastated. All I wanted to do was get back at Mike. Really? I'm not. Yes. Settle down. You see, we're held accountable for our actions, and we don't get to say, well, he, he did that. What, right that? And God said, no, is that what I told you? Did I tell you give you a golden rule, treat one another as they have treat, treated you? Is that the golden rule? What is it? 
as you would have them treat. Yeah, but what about, how about this one? I told you to love people as I have loved you. Are you doing that? Yes, but really, did you? You see that idea is that this way of living is living reactionary, living in what we think people deserve, living by our own justice, living by what goes around, comes around. That feels good. But it's upside down. Peter says, the Holy Spirit says, Live differently. There's a a leader in the Reformation, Thomas Kramer. He was uh, the first Archbishop of Canterbury. And he he was Catholic. He was in England, converted to Protestantism. And he actually wrote... Um, the common, uh, the the Book of Common Prayer, and it's uh, considered a classic, one of the the classics of all of English literature. It has these ideas, these principles, and uh, and eventually uh, England moved into a Reformation period, and he had this ministry. Then it moved back to um, Catholicism. And they were all, uh, I was telling Kendra about this, she couldn't believe it, that they were all burning one another at the stake on this, right? He was burned at the stake um, for his faith. It was said of this, Thomas Kramer, about his life by another leader, said this, to do him a hurt was to beget a kindness from him. His heart was made of such fine soil that if you planted in it the seeds of hate, they blossomed love. I thought, man, I I would love for the soil of my heart to be there. I would love that it doesn't matter the quality of seed that other people are planting in my heart, that their quality of seed does not determine what grows in the soil of my soul. But the grace of God, the love of God, the truth of God, the kingdom of God determines what grows in my soul. And friends, I know I can't get there. I can't. Without the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's too upside down to me. It's too a way of thinking that so does not flow naturally to me. One more principle from Peter and one more picture. I haven't picked really on this side. Kevin, what do you see when you look here? (laughs) An elephant. Anything else? Just kind of turn. Let's reframe. 
Yeah, I'd go with a swan. Yeah, this idea of upside down thinking. And here's one that is kind of interesting. Of course, it's a a central truth to the Christian faith, not surprising, but can we think for a moment about how upside down this is, and that is that we would abstain from the things we want to do in the flesh. That we would abstain from sinful desires that we would abstain, go to the next slide, Cindy, we would abstain from those things that feel really good. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, those desires that are rooted deeply in the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, sin might wage war against our soul, but in the body or in the flesh, they feel really good. Can we talk that frankly about sin? Let me see if I can convince you. Are we tempted to put our fire, uh, our hands again and again into a flame of fire? Is that a temptation that any of you wrestle with on a regular basis? Why not? Because it hurts. Can we talk about sex for a moment? All right. Said the young adults. Are we tempted by sex because it hurts? Well, we might be doing it wrong. But generally speaking, we're tempted by the things that that feel really good, that God is saying, yes, but there's boundaries, there's, there's guidance, there's direction. I remember when I was a young adult, I was uh, listening to an interview with Freddie Mercury. Yes, it dates me a little bit, and this is really pre-walking with the Lord, but I was, I, I was listening, and he said, yes, I have a hobby, it's sex. I love sex. That's what I want to do. And I remember thinking, well, of course that's wrong and there's going to be consequences. But I get it. I understand that there's a, there's a feeling good. Do I need to go to another subject here? No one's going. Let's go to gluttony, all right? We were driving Luke up to, you saw him last week, he surprised us, it was so fun. We're driving up to DIA to bring him back to school, and uh, we swung by um, Rubio's Fish Tacos, that restaurant. Has anyone eaten a fish taco at Rubio's? Does anyone? A few of you know. Okay. So Southern California, and I, we used to eat those weekly. I love those. And there's one that was kind of on our way to DIA. And so we stopped there, and I bit into that taco, and I was like, I could literally eat 20 of these. These are so good. And I was tempted after we dropped Luca and sent him off to suggest to Kendra that we return to Rubio's to purchase more of those. Why? Not because they taste bad. No, they taste good. 
but they taste really good, right? And there's this, there's this idea of, yes, there's that temptation. Would that be healthy for me to eat 20 of those fish tacos? No, but that's what I want to do, right? So this idea is that the Christian faith is saying that we don't just live by what we want to do. We don't just let our desires drive our decisions. That we don't just blow off boundaries and truth and righteousness because it feels really good. That within the kingdom, God wants us to live differently than that. In fact, it's a flipping, and, and this principle is that though God is a great and awesome God, he is a father who cares deeply about the details of our lives. He's a father who cares about our relationships, a father who cares about the decisions that we make. Go to the next slide. We have that father who loves us. And listen to some of these, these scriptures. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. I don't know if we have this one up there, but he says, these people scoff at things they do not understand. This is uh, Jude 1.10. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so they bring about their own dis destruction. What he is saying is that way of living, whether it's sex or gluttony or whatever it is, that is empty. Yes, it's fleshly and it feels good. But Jesus says, I died that you would have abundant life, full life, rich life. Friends, I, I, I think it has to do with the idea of faith. The, the, the word that helps me so much in, in faith is this idea of trust. Do you trust the Father when it comes to how you are to live? Do you trust the Father when it comes to your sexual activity and how you live your sexuality out? Do you trust the Father when it comes to relationships, whether gossip or jealousy, malice, anger? Do, do you really trust forgiveness and revenge. Do we really trust his truth enough? And we'll say, we trust you, Father. We, we trust that we are flying upside down. Our flesh is going to drive us to live this way. And the Father is trying to move us this way. Can we have that time with the Father where we're wrestling and saying, God, I really, really want to do this. Father, I, 
You know, not only do they have fish tacos, but they have Alaskan halibut. They have street tacos. I really would like to indulge in all of those. And would we allow him to say, yes, but you've made a covenant with that one fish taco. <laughs> and you promise not to go outside of that. So you need to walk in the counsel of the Father where he's saying, would you trust me with your life? I, I will teach you this abundant life that I've called you to. I died. It was the precious blood of my son, Jesus Christ, because I want you to live in the way that I created you to live. I know you might not get it fully. I know you might see it in this upside down way. Would you trust me? And I got to tell you, friends, just like with the other two, I'm going to live from a place of my flesh if it's all about me. The good news is, is he has promised his presence, his power on an ongoing basis. He's promised you and I that he'd give us that strength. As I was praying and, and working on this message, I wanted us to end with the opportunity to be anointed with oil. That I asked our, our prayer team if they would come up and, and, um, and really the anointing with oil is is a symbol that the, there, it's a physical representation of a number of different things, but primarily in scripture, a physical representation of his Holy Spirit. And, and Paul said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, instead, in fact, he's talking about drunkenness, another fleshly thing. I really like alcohol. He says, don't get drunk on wine. He's saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Drink deeply of my presence and power, not just once, but again and again and again. And as we close and worship and sing I'd like you to take advantage of this opportunity some of us are in a really really difficult place we are suffering and joy is the farthest thing from our thinking would you come and be filled with the Holy Spirit for some of us, we're, we're caught in this relationship or this way of living that is reactionary to the hurt that we perceive we're being affected by. And friends, we have to break that cycle. That's not the way of Christ. Would you come and be filled with the Holy Spirit? And then finally, some of that is we are trying our hardest
to abstain from things that are not good for us. And we know we need the presence and the power of the Spirit to do well. So any of those reasons or something else that's on your heart and soul that hasn't been said, would you come as we sing and receive that fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit? Can we stand together? And I'd like to pray for us. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. You have been speaking. You've been challenging. You've been working in our hearts and souls. Lord, what do you want to turn upside down in our lives? How do you want us to see and think and understand differently, to live and walk in a different way. We love you, Holy Spirit, and we thank you for your manifest presence in our lives.